Welcome to the Responsibility.Tech podcast, formerly known as the Anthropology Plus Technology podcast. I'm Dawn Walter, the founder of The Summit, an annual meeting of minds from the social sciences, business and technology. Our aim? To champion responsible tech and AI and the value that social scientists bring to the design and development of tech. In this podcast series, we're talking with some of the innovative and inspiring people working in this space. Join us to hear their stories, discover their ambitions, and get under the surface of the great work they're doing to ensure technology fulfills its incredible potential without having a detrimental effect on people's lives and society as a whole. Today, we're delighted to be talking to Laura Musgrave. Laura was named one of 100 brilliant women in AI ethics for 2022. Laura is a digital anthropology and user experience researcher, and her research specialism is artificial intelligence, particularly data and privacy. Laura gave a short talk at the inaugural conference in 2019 on privacy and convenience in the use of AI smart speakers. And at the 2021 event, Laura chaired the panel Data, Privacy and Responsibility. So we're really pleased to have the opportunity to chat to her. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Good, thank you, Dawn. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, I'm really intrigued why data and privacy in particular is your research interest. So where does that interest stem from? I'd started off conducting some studies on smart assistants and became very interested, particularly in the relationship between people and smart home technology. And it sort of continued from there, really. Around about that time that I I was doing those studies, it was sort of 2018, 2019. And smart home devices, um, particularly like the ownership of smart home devices, was growing really rapidly at that point. And it was around sort of one in 10 homes in the UK had at least one smart speaker. um, And in some cases, many, many more smart devices as well. And even since then, so uh, up until last year, it, it sort of continued to grow and it, it's now one in two homes in the UK have at least one smart speaker. So you can kind of see the rapid, you know, rise that, that smart home tech was was kind of following. So it seemed a very interesting um, area to explore, uh, in particular, given how fast it was growing. And for me, it, it was really interesting to think about that in the context of a home and what that might mean. Um, So thinking particularly about sort of boundaries in terms of boundaries between what's public, what's private. Um, Also thinking about, you know, how space is used in the home uh, and and how smart home devices might play a part in that. So what's shared space, what's private space. And it also led me to think as well and, and, and wonder about the boundaries between the corporations that make the devices and the consumers, the, the people living in the smart home as well. So there was lots of really interesting stuff to, to kind of dive into there. And it was one of those situations where one question led to another question, led to another question. And it was almost like pulling on sort of like a ball of yarn and suddenly going, oh, this thing goes for miles. You know, um, it just was endlessly interesting to me. You gave a lightning talk about AI smart speakers at the 2019 conference. The key takeaway, for me at least, is that the general public tend to trust companies to keep their data private and that they are, generally speaking, willing to forgo sharing the data for convenience. 
privacy by and large isn't something the general public is interested in. So how can people working on responsible tech like you get users to care? That's a really interesting area to explore as well. And this was a really interesting area when I was studying the smart speaker use. And in in the sense of there were some of the participants that I worked with who um, were perhaps more concerned than I'd anticipated. But there were also some participants I worked with who perhaps were a lot more comfortable with the idea of, of you know, uh, privacy concerns and, and smart home technology. And so there was a real spectrum, I guess, there in terms of people's uh, attitudes and, and, you know, approaches to having smart home technology. It, it was kind of an interesting time uh, around then because in the, the same year, Shoshana Zuboff brought out her book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and the conversation publicly about sort of privacy and corporate digital responsibility started to shift a little bit. Um, there had been a lot of conversations around, you know, all of these types of themes before, certainly in uh, the technology industry and in academia. But this was the point where it started to almost become, you know, a real public conversation. And certainly from that time onwards, there's been this sort of growing public awareness around privacy and technology and wider questions about, you know, what socially responsible AI is, for example. And it, it was interesting to me because as well as sort of hearing reports from other people in terms of, you know, be it journalists or be it, um, you know, academic researchers or be it industry researchers, talking about them seeing the same sort of theme of growing privacy. I was seeing it in my own interviews, my own participant sessions, um, where, you know, unprompted participants would bring up some of these types of things. So, um, for example, the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal was, was mentioned um, when people were talking about the sort of security and the privacy of their own sort of personal data. And you know, conversations uh, co coming up around sort of, you know, GDPR being sort of like a commonly used term and, uh, you know, conversations as well around the use of algorithms. So um, what was, again, quite a um, technical and, uh, you know, limited audience conversation around how algorithms were used, for example, um, in social media feeds or, you know, in sort of decision making processes were suddenly coming out in in conversations and interviews that weren't really around that theme they were around other things and and you know so it really interested me that some of these things were actually starting to become you know publicly discussed um and and there was a lot more sort of growing awareness i think as well seeing also some of the the documentaries that have, have come out too um so there's, there's been various uh, ones on on those types of themes. I think some of the the ones that have been mentioned to me quite a lot from members of the general public have been things like um, uh, the social dilemma, which was controversial in some circles, um, but you know it, it did become a public talking point. And similarly for um, coded bias, which looked at Joy Borlamwini's work, and of course we had a viewing for that, didn't we, at the conference as well? So. Um, all of these types of things seem to really bring up conversations around not only privacy, but around, you know, the, the use of AI and, and how it should be used. And it seemed to be, a, there seemed to be a real sort of shift there in terms of, 
how people were talking about technology in public and, and talking about privacy. Since then, it seems like as well as the conversation moving forward, there's also been, uh, you know, sort of a real uptake of, of kind of privacy controls in terms of technology from the general public. Um, and the pandemic, of course, has played a part in that because so many more people now are using more technology more often than perhaps they, they did previously. So there's a lot more um, consideration. There's a lot more, you know, thinking happening around this. Um, and the, some recent examples being, you know, 96% of iPhone users in the United States have opted out of app tracking as, as a, you know, sort of recent, um, you know, finding that's come out. And similarly, so DuckDuckGo, the kind of privacy focused search engine, they've had a 55% search traffic in, increase um, in, in recent years. So there seems to be, you know, a bit of a shift happening here in terms of that conversation around privacy and certainly in terms of public attitudes to it and, and what it should look like. Um, I think as well, in terms of the tech industry itself, more conversations are starting to, to happen. And certainly when I was looking at the smart speakers work, there was very much a focus on sort of privacy in exchange for convenience. And it, it was almost a, a binary thing. It was like, you know, you have a choice one or the other, which is it going to be? Um, and actually the, the conversation is sort of moving on a little bit more now. And perhaps as a result of the, you know, public awareness that, that has sort of grown around this, and more, you know, people are starting to ask, well, why, why can't we have both, you know, and, and what would that look like? And even when you're looking at sort of different um, technology companies, different organisations, there seems to be more of a, a realisation now that, uh, you know, privacy can be profitable, certainly as a, you know, a brand pillar or as part of, you know, what your brand represents. So there's, there's a bit of an interesting shift. Um, I think kind of underpinning all of this is is a massive question, which is where does the responsibility lie for privacy and other responsibilities when we're talking about technology? And different people may give different answers to that. You know, uh, some folks, you know, have talked about the idea of the privacy um, responsibility sitting with, you know, the general public, the end users, um, and, and having some sort of choice in that. Other people have talked about it sitting with the companies, the organizations that are making the technology or building it and deploying it. And other folks yet have said, well, actually, the regulators um, have, have got a part to play and the lawmakers have, have got a part in this. And it's, it's not particularly straightforward, but there's probably the truth of it is probably a little bit of all of the above, you know. Um, but um, I think the key, the key thing for the public is really the, the knowledge and awareness and having control so as you know user researchers in particular working on these types of projects that's something that we need to bear in mind uh, and and try and you know support you know how how do we how do we help people understand what's happening with their data how do we help them you know uh, I guess understand what they what they would like to opt into or, or not you help organisations to build and use technology in a socially responsible way, particularly AI and emerging tech. As a senior user researcher, from your work and your perspective, 
How can the research methods and lens of anthropology be used to design responsible AI and tech more broadly? This is, this is an area that really I find interesting in a sense because my career journey went from user research through that into anthropology and most people that I know their career journey has been the opposite way on. So they've studied anthropology, gone through that into user research. So I've, I've, there's probably some things that we have in, in common in terms of pers perspectives from that uh, sense. But I, I, for me, it's, it's really interesting because I, I've done and seen user research both without and with anthropology. So I'm coming to it from that perspective, in case that helps anybody that's listening to, to make sense of how, how I'm describing this. Um, so the user researchers that really stood out to me very early on in my career were uh, the anthropologists and the ethnographers. And the way that they commented on technology developments, the way that they interpreted what was happening in the headlines, um, there was something about the way that they were able to look at things and, and understand them that really showed that sort of deep understanding of human behavior. And I knew straight away that they had something different than I had. And it, it wasn't just in terms of differing levels of experience, although that certainly was, was true <laughs> at that time. Um, but they also had this um, lens or perspective that helped them to pinpoint the sort of deeper meaning and the sort of cultural currents. And I hadn't seen that anywhere else. It, it sort of, it really gave me pause for thought. And if I was scrolling my Twitter feed and seeing things that they were commenting on, I would always stop and read what they'd, they'd written. And more than read it, I'd actually sit there and think about it for a few minutes and, and, and ponder it. And that sort of set the bar for me at that early stage because I was reading what they were the writing about and I was seeing the talks that they were doing. And I was like, what is that magic source? You know, how, how do I do what they do? You know, that, that was where I wanted to go. Um, and the thing that they all had in common was anthropology and ethnography. So I was like, well, I guess that I guess that's where I'm going. You know, I guess that's where I want to be. Um, and I, I think there's, a, there's different aspects to it, of, of course. You know, I mean, ethnographic methods, you know, you'll agree, are, uh, you know, really powerful. And they give you such, you know, rich data that is so invaluable when you're trying to understand the relationship between people and technology. And even more so, if you're trying to design something new or if you're aiming to have something that's innovative um, as an end product or an end result, you know, th there is very little that can compare to ethnography and, and ethnographic methods. So that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about. The, the other part of it that I don't always think necessarily gets the um, focus that it deserves is probably the social theory and the sort of philosophic side to it as well which is really crucial because understanding that not only makes your research process more thorough in terms of it helps you to explain why you've chosen certain research methods but it also helps you to make connections more quickly in your analysis and it helps you understand um, in a deeper way because you can make sense of patterns and you've got some sort of framework or context from the literature, you know, you, you're not on your own. It's not just your project in isolation. You're actually part of a bigger picture and you're helping um, yourself to make sense of that and, and understands what it means, what it means as part of that bigger picture. 
So that then enables you as a researcher to provide a much deeper level of insight and clarity for the people you're working with and the people that you're, you're, you know, sort of working on behalf of, you know, so whether that's your stakeholders or your client or whoever it is that you're, you're ultimately, you know, sharing the research with, uh, that actually helps you to, to deliver more for them, really. The other part that I, I will just add on as well is that when you are a researcher, um, and it depends on the context, whether you're an in-house researcher or whether you're, you know, a consultancy researcher, um, it helps you to understand the organisational culture in a more in-depth way as well, um, both for your own organisation and any others that you're working with, like partners or clients. Um, and in, in that way, you can it helps you to be more effective with, with what you do with your, your research. One of the questions I do get asked, what book should I read if I want to learn more about anthropology? And one of the books I recommend is How to Think Like an Anthropologist. I wonder what books that you've read when you were sort of starting your journey that you'd recommend to people who might also be in the situation that you're in. It's a tricky one. The first one that comes to mind is probably one of Sam Ladner's. And she's not an anthropologist, she's, but she is an ethnographer. <laughs> so um, she, but she, she's written a book called um, Practical Ethnography which is a very slim volume, but every single word is really powerful, you know, so it's very well written, it's very concise, and it sums up a lot of how you incorporate a lot of these types of things actually in your work, um, and uh, gives you sort of pointers as to where you can go to find out more. And I think when I was trying to read lots about this and trying to understand lots about this, that was a very practical as the title suggests, um, way to actually make sense of how it fit, fitted into my everyday work. It is a very good book, and I think she articulates quite clearly why social theory is so important yes. to help you understand what you're discovering. And like you said, you know, I think Rosie Webb said it quite nicely in the last uh, podcast. She sort of said, like, we're you know, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. There's people who've done work before you um, who you can draw on. Thank you for that. That's a good a good book tip. Um, you were named one of the 100 Brilliant Women in AI Ethics for 2022. The award aims to highlight women working in this largely male-dominated space. So I wanted to know, from your perspective, what does the AI ethics landscape with respect to data and privacy look like for 2022? I think this is quite an interesting one because in some senses, much the same as before, but then, as in last year, <laughs> but then in a sense... It, it's a constantly developing space and there's constantly new initiatives, even, you know, just from what we were talking about earlier, you know, from year to year, even probably every six months, there's, there's changes in terms of the technology itself. There's changes in terms of public attitudes um, shifting. So there's, there's a lot that's the same and there's a lot that's, that's probably different. So even what I say now will probably be, be quite different by the end of, 2022 you know so um i think probably some of the key themes that we're we're going to see is um you know conversations about regulation being an ongoing area that needs to continue to be um assessed and needs to continue to develop and i, I think as as it is um progressing looking to see how well that fits the uses of of ai now so 
Um, there's already kind of conversations around whether, for example, deep fake technology, um, when it's used in a negative way, whether that's all already covered by certain regulation or whether we need new regulation to cover that. So that's just one example of some of the areas where, you know, we might need to rethink that. Um, I think it's also worth as I don't think you can say too many times that obviously the legal requirements are, are obviously only part of the picture of responsible tech. Um, and I don't think you can sort of park everything at the, you know, at regulation, just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll wait for the regulators to kind of get around to it, because th there are some areas of socially responsible technology, some principles which aren't necessarily covered by the legal aspect, but still very important to make sure that we're maximising the benefits of technology and reducing the risk of, of harm to people. Um, there's also the, the part about regulation obviously takes quite a lot of time, you know, in terms of the, the lawmaking side um, and, and there's very good reasons for that, but at the same time, you know, we also want to address things sooner. So uh, that's still a very important part of the picture, but it is only part of it, which I think is probably the key thing. Other aspects that I think uh, there's been a lot of conversations um, in the tech industry and in academia about AI governance, for example, at different levels and what that might look like. And I think even, even focusing down at the sort of company organisation level, um, there's really opportunities there for building in responsible AI and responsible technology processes at both the sort of strategic decision-making level, but also lower down at sort of project level or day-to-day, -day, um, you know, sort of design level. And there's a lot of, you know, really switched on organisations that are doing that now that are trying to stay ahead of the, what the public or their consumers expect of them. And where relevant, their competitors as well, because this is an area, as we've just been saying, that is continuing to develop. And, you know, there, there are organisations out there that are actively, you know, putting these processes in place, you know, have got, um, you know, real long term plans for how they're going to address this um, moving forward as well. I think a lot of conversations as well around sort of acceptable use of AI and, and devices. So, for example, last year, there was conversations around um, smart home technology, which, as you know, is my particular area that I'm, I'm very interested in. Um, and for example, like smart, smart doorbells that, um, you know, are looking out onto the street or looking out onto neighbours' properties and things like that. And there was a court decision made last year around smart doorbells, um, you know, in terms of overlooking other people, recording other people that hadn't necessarily consented to, to be recorded. And that was ruled to be a, a breach of the Data Protection Act and UK GDPR. Um, so there's, there's various things like that, that almost we haven't quite ironed out yet what where the boundaries are, if you like, you know, what what is acceptable in terms of, of this this use. Um, and, and that's obviously use by kind of private individuals, by the public, um, also thinking about, you know, corporations and how they're using smart technology as well um, in, in workplaces, for example. So there's a lot of a lot of things like that for us to try and unpick. Other areas that have sort of been an ongoing theme that I think are going to continue. So questions around children and AI and their relationship with it, you know, obviously they're more sort of um, I guess, vulnerable to 
the influence of, of technology in their lives, um, particularly if they're growing up alongside these, these uh, you know, technologies coming in. Um, there's a lot of work happening already on sort of how do we sort of make sure that's a healthy relationship that they have with technology and that they do get the benefit from it. Um, but at the same time, making sure that we try and avoid any unintended consequences or any potential harms that happen there. And I think that the final one um, that I've seen quite a lot on is around um, sort of how data is, is used in terms of uh, data collation and profiling, use of sensitive data, particularly in things like advertising and assumptions that may or may not be made about people's identity and things like that, um, and how that's uh, managed and, and, and governed as well. So that, that's kind of my top things. Hopefully that gives a little bit of a flavour of some of the things that are, you know, are, are continuing to be a focus. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. So before we go, is there anything you want to leave us with that we haven't covered today? I thought I might bring along a few books recommendations to the party because I, I know I know you know we've, we've got a lot of book enthusiasts <laughs> in the community um so some of the the recent ones that I've, I've been looking at um uh, the first one fake AI picked up that one that's got a real range of different perspectives on sort of responsible AI um some of them are focused on privacy but some of them are focused on other aspects um so that one's a really interesting one if if anybody's wanting to dive into the AI side um for anybody that's interested in sort of more of the the data side and and maybe more around privacy not specific to AI um the, the same publisher actually has um, an interesting one um, called Data Justice and COVID-19 Global Perspectives, which has got some really good um, essays around privacy in the context of the pandemic um, and, and the technology that's um, being used. And the thing that I like about it is there's a series of essays um, on different themes, but then it goes into um, a series of essays from different uh, countries around the world and there's a real selection there so um, yeah I got both of those um, from Meatspace Press I've enjoyed both of those recently. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? Just uh, to invite anybody to um, get in touch with me if if they've sort of had any thoughts off the back of this podcast um, if you know you can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn um, at Twitter I'm at L Musgrave so yeah please message or, or drop me a line and be really interested to hear what what your thoughts are around privacy and AI in particular so thank you so much Laura it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today it's been very enjoyable thank you for having me you've been listening to the responsibility.tech podcast formerly known as the Apology plus technology podcast there are more conversations in this podcast series, so subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the summit, go to response-ability.tech, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Until next time, I hope you have a lovely day.